Greetings to you from the UK. Grace and I had been so looking forward to actually being with you, uh, but not the 8th of November. 8th of November is when we are allowed to travel back into the States, so, so sadly, missing it again this time. But really thrilled to be able to kick off the teaching for our time together, based around the messages of Jesus to the seven churches, the seven letters to the seven churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation. We felt this would be a great theme for us to dig into and explore as we are still coming out of what has been a very challenging couple of years and as we're thinking about the future and what it means to partner together, what it means to lead and serve in our local churches and to help and strengthen one another between churches and look to plant new churches. As we work through these seven letters, these seven words of Jesus to the seven churches, we see both real commendations. There are things which Jesus picks out, signs of grace at work in these churches. And we can be encouraged by those things because we can see parallels with where we're seeing signs of grace. We also get a real challenge because Jesus often actually speaks words of rebuke or warning to these churches about things where they're not doing so well. And again, these are very relevant to us. This section of Revelation just feels extraordinarily relevant to us, our context and our time. And we need to be really clear about what the church is, what the church is for, what our mission and calling are. And uh, my hope and confidence is that as we look through these seven churches over this time, we will be helped, we'll be focused again, we'll be encouraged, sharpened up in our thinking again to understand what it is that we are called to do. So let's get into it. We're actually going to start a little bit further back in the letter of Revelation, the vision of Revelation, to try and give the context. We're going to start in verse 9 of chapter 1, where John paints a picture for us of what he is seeing, what is being revealed to him in this vision given him by Jesus Christ. He says this, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Okay, let's begin by thinking about the context. Let's think about the person who's saying this, the place in which he's saying it, and the time in which he is saying it. The uh, author of this book of the Bible, we're told, is John. And according to church tradition, that is John, the beloved disciple, John, the friend of Jesus. One of the 12, John, who sat next to Jesus, leant against him on the night of the last Supper, And at this point in John's life, he is elderly and he is exiled, but he's still faithful, still faithfully pursuing the God, the call that God has put upon his life. And he describes himself as brother and companion, or in the ESV, I think it says partner, brother and partner, brother and companion to those in the seven churches to whom this letter is addressed. We see here, right at the beginning of uh, this part of scripture, the importance of gospel partnership and the importance of family. John, the apostle, but a brother and a companion, a partner with those in these seven churches. And we are called to this kind of partnership and we're called to this kind of 
brotherhood. We've been taken by the grace of God from being individuals just doing things our own way to becoming members of the family of God. And John would remind us of that right at the beginning of this letter. He gives a kind of status, or should I say status, reports in this introduction. He reports on his physical status and his spiritual status. Physically, John is in exile. He says he's on Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And we understand that uh, John had been exiled to this small island, island of Patmos because of his preaching of the gospel. The authorities had sent him there to get him out of the way to stop him from uh, causing trouble by preaching the word of God. That's his physical status, but also he describes his spiritual status. And he says that he is partnering with them in suffering in the kingdom and in patient endurance. He's partnering in suffering the kingdom and patient endurance. And life in Christ involves all of these three things. Life in Christ involves an experience of suffering, involves an experience of the kingdom, and it does require patient endurance. Requires suffering or involves suffering. Thinking about all that's gone on in the last few months with uh, what's happened in Afghanistan and uh, obviously some uh, alarming scenes there and reading stories at that time about Christians in Afghanistan of whom there are of course only a small number but reading about some of the real suffering they were enduring, reading just heartbreaking stories about Christian households being targeted by the Taliban, having property seized, having teenage daughters taken away and put into forced marriages with Taliban soldiers, just absolutely desperate stuff. Sometimes, sometimes being a Christian involves suffering of the most extreme and brutal kind. Often, certainly in our experience, praise God, the suffering we experience as Christians or for being Christians is not of that kind of extremity, but can nonetheless be real. I think about uh, young people in my church who went back to school uh, in September when our school term here in the UK started again, and just how hard it can be in public schools to be a Christian, to bear the name of Christ. Certainly in our context here in the UK, it would be very normal for a Christian from our church, a young person from our church, to be the only Christian in their class in school and to have to handle and deal with the reality of, of some genuine kind of suffering. Standing up for Christ in that kind of situation is costly. Christian life also, praise God, involves an experience of the kingdom we are living in the end times, all the times since the death and resurrection of Christ are the end times. We are living in these end times and in these end times we experience the kingdom of God breaking in. That means that we see evidences of God's kingdom at work amongst us in terms of his grace and his power and his majesty. We see evidences of it and how the church of Jesus Christ operates or is meant to operate. We see it when we have those moments of really knowing the direction, leadership, uh, working of the Holy Spirit amongst us, signs and wonders following, all these evidences of the kingdom of God at work amongst us. And in all this, we need to be those who patiently endure. Life isn't always easy. A lot of the past couple of years has certainly not been easy. I know in my context in the UK, at times it has felt 
really tough over the past couple of years with all we've had to deal with. And I know for you in the States, actually some of those things have at times been even tougher. All the political stuff you've had to deal with, the polarization in society, the arguments, the disputation, the pandemic, the whole thing. This has not been an easy season for any of us. It's called for patient endurance. But John says that these things are ours in Jesus. They are ours. They are ours in Jesus. What he's giving us is really a kind of a definition of discipleship. That, yes, we get to share in kingdom rule with Jesus Christ, but that is not without difficulty and it requires perseverance. So that is what it is to be a disciple of Jesus, to share in his kingly kingdom rule but to have to endure, to have to persevere and to experience times often of difficulty. And so when we see churches or individual Christians who are suffering, that is not a sign that Christ is not ruling. When we see what we've seen in Afghanistan or we see stuff closer to home or we see things in people that we know and love, that is not a sign that Christ is not ruling. No, Christ's rule coexists with the suffering of his people. The two go hand in hand, kingdom, difficulty, patient endurance. So John gives a report on who he is, where he is, how he is, and he also tells us which day he's in as he sees this vision. He says it's the Lord's day, that's Sunday, resurrection day, first day of the week. And it's worth just kind of pointing out as we read that, that Sundays matter, there is, it's not incidental that this is the Lord's Day, Resurrection Day, Sunday, on which John has his vision. He, he, he's not with his friends in the church because he's exiled on Patmos, but he's still with the Lord on the Lord's Day. And Sundays matter. We need to, and we need to encourage our people to gather on Sundays, the people of God gathering together on the Lord's Day, in the Lord's presence, hearing the Lord's voice to us. He also says that it's not only on the Lord's day, but he is in the spirit. And again, that is a good place to be, to be in that place where we are experiencing, knowing, open to receiving from the reality of the Holy Spirit, speaking to us and leading us. And then he has this vision, and it's a vision for the seven churches, the seven churches of Asia, as they're known, uh, Asia, uh, what we think of today as Turkey. And each of these cities were about 30 to 50 miles apart. They were kind of regional centers across this significant geographical area. And there's a symbolic significance to the seven. Uh, that the fact that there are seven churches is not coincidental or an accident. No, biblically speaking, the number seven always tells us something is going on. Seven is the perfect number, biblically speaking. It's the number of the days of the week, and it has all kinds of symbolic significance. And of course, the book of Revelation is full of symbolism. And these seven, because seven is the perfect number, it's the number of completeness. These seven stand for all churches. It's the letters are, are addressed to specific churches in particular towns at a particular time, but they also stand for and represent all churches in all places at all times. And that means that these messages from Jesus to the seven churches are messages to us, and we need to hear them. And the overall picture that we get of these churches as we read through what Christ has to say to them is that they gen generally are not doing great. 
a number of them are in what we might think of as in quite poor conditioning, poor condition. And, and there's actually something about that which is, which is, to me at least, quite encouraging. When we think about the state of the church in our world, we can look at the church around us and think there's a lot here which is not in good condition. There's a lot here which isn't that healthy. There's a lot here which isn't functioning as the church is meant to function. But what these messages of Christ to his church tell us is that Christ has never, never does let go of his church. That yeah, there are issues with a number of these churches, but Christ never lets go of his church. He never will. Let's pick it up again at verse 12 of chapter one. John says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash round his chest. The hair on his head was, was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. What we have here is a picture of the cosmic Christ. It's a vision of the risen, glorified Christ walking amongst the lampstands. And this vision that John has of Jesus is overwhelming, even terrifying. And when we read through the book of Revelation, we see that it is full of symbolism. And to understand what is going on in the book of Revelation, we really need to have a familiarity with the Old Testament. We need to understand Old Testament prophecy. We also need to understand the historical context in which uh, the book of Revelation was written. And of course, we'll be exploring some of those themes in these seven messages. Now, what is described here is something which is essentially indescribable. There's this symbolic vision, visionary language that is used to describe Jesus, one who is overwhelming, even terrifying. And this is John, who had been Jesus's closest companion in the days of Jesus's ministry on earth. And now John sees Jesus and it's as though he's dead. He, John just kind of can't cope. He, he falls to the floor as though dead. And there's something that should speak to us here about how we regard Jesus, that we shouldn't take Jesus lightly. We need to come before Jesus in awe and wonder and reverently because he is overwhelming in his majesty and his glory. We need to see who, who Jesus is, see the way that Jesus describes himself to John here, that he is the before all and after all, all death conquering 
king and he holds the keys, holds the keys to death and Hades. He has authority over them. He is in command. And so in the madness and the pain of this world, we need to remember, we need to remind ourselves, he holds the keys. He's the one who has authority. He's in charge. He's the key holder. And we need to see him in that way. And then Jesus himself translates for us some of the symbolism which uh, we have here. He says the seven stars are the angels of the churches and the lampstands are the churches. And what we see here in this symbolic picture, this vision of Jesus walking amongst the lampstands is that local churches matter to Jesus. There are these seven lampstands in his vision representing the seven churches to whom the letters are addressed. Local churches matter to Jesus. Jesus holds the stars like he holds the keys. He's got angelic command. He has authority and he holds the churches securely. And it's with that vision of Jesus, of who he is, his power, his majesty, his authority, the way that he holds the churches, that we then turn and hear what he says to these churches. The first church, Revelation 2 verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships by name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What we see in this letter, this first letter to a church, the church in Ephesus, is a description of what is a cold-hearted church, a cold-hearted church. The church in Ephesus comes first in this list of the seven churches and it was a very notable church in a very important city and Jesus addresses this letter as he does all seven of the letters to the angel of the church these are the, the spiritual representatives of the church and we must remember the spiritual dimension church life is not a human a merely human activity there's a spiritual dynamic in which we already live the angels are concerned with what is happening in the churches and our lives now need to be modeled on what is happening in the heavenly places Jesus taught us to pray your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and so in Ephesus or in Paul or in Moorhead City or wherever the church is found, we are to model our reality on that heaven reality. Your kingdom come, your will be done here as it is in heaven. And the believers in Ephesus were the fruit of a remarkable breaking in of the kingdom of God. We read about that in Acts chapter 19. 
and the account of the Apostle Paul's time in Ephesus features prominently in the book of Acts. It was an amazing breaking in of God's kingdom in that city. We, of course, also have the letter to the Ephesians, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, which is such a foundational letter for us in so many ways. And the Apostle John also spent much of his ministry in Ephesus. So, This city and this church are absolutely central to the Christian story. If you're going to understand the Christian story, you need to understand something of what happened in Ephesus. And this church, this vital church, was in a city which was important. It was important politically, culturally, and commercially. So what is it that the Lord is going to speak to a church as famous as this in a city as significant as this? What Jesus speaks to this church is, first of all, a commendation, and then a rebuke, and then he gives them a promise. Let's look at those in turn. First of all, he commends them. He commends them for their diligence. He says they have worked hard and they have endured Ephesus was not an easy place to be a follower of Jesus Christ. In the account in Acts, we read about how the ministry in which Paul and others were engaged and the impact it was having and the numbers of people who were turning to Christ in the end precipitated a riot in the city. Uh, What was happening because of the gospel, the kingdom breaking in in Ephesus, was shaking the spiritual and the economic and the political powers. And the spiritual and economic and political powers did not like that and they responded and there was this riot when the life of Paul was threatened and all kinds of chaos broke out. And the believers in Ephesus must often have felt to use a modern term, that they were on the wrong side of history. That in what they believed, in the lives they were now living, they were totally going against the grain of what was expected and normal and and valued in their culture. They were living differently and that made them vulnerable and yet they persevered despite that opposition, despite that vulnerability. And they persevered in the truth. And this is a big deal. Uh, When the Apostle Paul, when we read in Acts 20 about how he uh, bade farewell to the Ephesian elders, he said to them, Acts 20 verse 29, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. The Apostle Paul anticipated, saw a day when false teachers would come into the church at Ephesus and would do damage to the people of God there. And here in Revelation, we have the testimony of Jesus And Jesus says that they have resisted that. They've clearly paid heed to the Apostle Paul's warning. And they haven't allowed false teachers to come in and disrupt them. They haven't allowed false apostles to knock them off track. They've resisted the Nicolaitans. Um, We think the Nicolaitans were a heretical sect who... um, maintained pagan practices around idolatry and immorality and, and, set, and was saying, you, kind of, you can have it all. You can be a follower of Christ, but you can still uh, worship the idols and you can still engage in immorality and that's all fine. And, and Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, you, you've resisted the Nicolaitans. You, you've resisted that false teaching which wanted to find a home in the church and would have undermined all that this church stands for. And, and, and as well as that, as well as holding fast the truth, They've kept their energy levels up. Jesus says, you haven't grown weary. And that's impressive. Actually, that's massively impressive because 
it's easy to get weary in the face of conflict or opposition or difficulty. I'm sure many of us have felt that over the past couple of years. I know myself, there have been times, to be honest, many times when I've just felt somewhat weary when it's felt relentless, the, the political stuff we've had to deal with and then the pandemic stuff and the political stuff coming out of the pandemic stuff and all that stuff and the complications of meeting or not meeting together and all that we've had to deal with the past few years, at times just living in that place of what feels like constant conflict and attrition just is energy sapping, <laughs> makes us weary. Certainly it's made me weary. And Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, they haven't grown weary. That's remarkable. That's impressive. That's an incredible sign of God's grace. They've done so well. And Jesus commends them. And you, if you've kept going through this season, you haven't given up. Even if at times you felt weary, you still pressed on and you're still here and you're still faithful and still loving Jesus and still holding to the truth. Well done. That's commendable. Well done. But there's a, a but that comes after the commendation. There's a rebuke that follows Christ's commendation of this church. And Christ's rebuke is that they have abandoned their first love. They've become cold-hearted. It seems that they're still doing the stuff. They're still going through the motions, still keeping their energy levels up, still holding to the truth but their hearts have grown cold. This is a church that is correct in its doctrine, but cold in its heart. Maybe it was that in persevering in the truth, in, in fighting that fight to hold on to true doctrine, maybe, maybe even because of that fight, because of that battle, they had become somewhat legalistic. It can happen. We all know examples of that, don't we, where people who fight for the truth, who really labor diligently to be faithful to the teachings of scripture, to, to get things right theologically, to get things right doctrinally, somehow seem to be cold inside. And the rebuke that Jesus brings to this church is that they are no longer really witnessing, they're not lampstanding to the world as once they did. And that's a dangerous place to be. We're told in Acts 19 that through Paul's ministry in Ephesus, the witness of that church, that everyone in the whole province of Asia had been somehow caught up in, in, in this gospel mission. Uh, the gospel had gone out to the whole province of Asia because of what had happened in Ephesus. Other churches, which the Apostle Paul actually never went to, cities he never visited, churches were started because of what happened in Ephesus. And now Jesus says to them, Look how far you've fallen. This is what you were, Ephesian church. This is what you now are. Correct, but cold. Jesus says that if they don't change, he is going to come and take their lampstand away. He says he will come to you. And the reality is that Christ visits his churches. Jesus assesses his churches and we have to remember that they are his churches my church gateway church it's not really my church it's jesus's church and your church is not really your church it's the lord's church it 
belongs to him. It's, it's his, his possession. And there's a, serious, a very serious warning to us here in what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, that if a church stops doing what a lampstand is meant to do, there is no reason for that church's ongoing existence. If the church doesn't do what the church is meant to do, if a lampstand doesn't cast the light it's meant to cast, there is no reason for its existence. And the reality is that no local church has a God-given right to permanent existence. The, the church will exist throughout all time, but local churches don't have to. And we can see this all around us, certainly in my context. This is the case in our post-Christian Britain. Evidence all around us of churches that have grown cold-hearted and then died and often there is a going through the motions right until the moment the lampstand is taken away and it's all too easy to kind of track the decline of churches like that at first these are churches which are still holding to the truth but there's no real love no real passion no real heat in those churches in their service of Jesus and then the truth actually becomes a kind of a lip service thing and the activities that the church does become more important than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then it becomes simply about trying to keep the lights on and you have the dance club and various other community groups who kind of hire the church hall and put enough money into the coffers to keep the lights on. And then finally, death comes. The lampstand is taken away. The church dies seen it so many times and so there's danger for us which we need to see that we could be turning up and doing the stuff and serving and giving but in our hearts be cold I recognize the danger of this in my own heart I guess amongst many of you like me there are those of us who are, are, are paid it's our job to be pastors, to serve in church, on church staff. And there's a real danger for us in that of becoming professional Christians, that we do it because that's our job. And we go through the motions, and we turn up and we do the stuff, but we can be dying inside. Such a dangerous place to get to, to be a professional Christian with a cold heart. And so in this next season for us, as we hopefully continue to come out of the pandemic and as we plot our way ahead as churches and as we work our way forward in advance and get clarity about what that means for us at this time. There's a need for us to work hard. There's a need for us to persevere. We need to keep fighting for the truth. There are no shortage of wicked people and false apostles and Nicolaitans around. We have to keep fighting for the truth, not compromising on that. But our fight for the truth needs to come from warm hearts. And the key thing for us in this season might be simply getting our hearts warm again. Maybe these couple of days together, the main thing for you is just to get your heart warm again. We see here from Jesus to the church in Ephesus a commendation, well done, and a rebuke, change. And then comes a promise. And the promise is this. Keep going, get a hot heart, warm-hearted people, and you'll eat from the tree of life. Jesus is saying that life is what awaits God's victorious people. 
Those who are victorious will eat from the tree of life. And what is being described here, and what we see as we read through Revelation, as we get to the end of Revelation and see a picture of new creation, of heaven coming down to earth, what we see is this, this picture of Eden restored. And the tree of life is part of that picture. And we can't actually understand the gospel, we can't understand the Bible story if we don't have some understanding of the trees and how significant trees are. There's a lot of talk at the moment about how important trees are, about how many millions or trillions of trees we need to plant to uh, protect the planet. Well, trees are important in the Bible too. The, the story starts with a tree, the tree of rebellion, that place where the first man and woman rebelled against God. It happened at a tree. And at the end of the story, there's another tree, the tree of life, from which men and women will eat and will live. There's a tree of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. That's a beautiful picture, a profound picture. That's something to think about at the moment with all the talk of, of uh, what's happening in the environment and all the talk about trees. There's a, there's a tree whose leaves will bring healing to the nations. That's a beautiful, profound picture. And... What joins these trees together, the tree of rebellion and the tree of life, is the tree of the cross. That by coming to Christ, by knowing him, by receiving from him what he has won for us at the cross, redemption, forgiveness, freedom from sin, victory over death and Hades, by coming to the tree of the cross, the tree of rebellion is cut down and the tree of life can be embraced and God's people are invited into full participation in the shalom the peace the wholeness of God what does victory look like those who are victorious will eat from the tree of life what does victory look like it looks like love it looks like love it looks like being a people who are hot for Jesus warm-hearted not cold-hearted in this season in this time we're in with all that we have gone through and experienced and all that lies ahead of us the challenges we can see and anticipate and others we can't yet see and anticipate but surely lay around the corner yes we need to keep persevering we need to be like the ephesians keeping energy up working hard holding to the truth but we need to do that as warm-hearted people those who delight in god who know his love and who love him. Let that be true of each one of us personally. May it be true of our churches. May our lampstands keep burning bright for the glory of God. Amen.